Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Good evening, first of all. Behind all these uh, microphones, I feel like a politician. <coughs> Maybe I should start lying. The um, I want to. This is Maryland. I wish to um, once again start by uh, mentioning that we're doing a lecture series here for a week or six nights, more or less in a row. The title is called "Revolution: uh, Jews and the Great European Revolutions," and tonight is the second lecture called "The French Revolution and the Political Fate of the Jews," as you can see over here. And sponsored by, don't put water near me. Oh, my goodness. Oh, no, 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 no. Oh, no. He says, yeah. Oh, boy. That's it. Sponsored by uh, Jordan and Jeffrey and I of Michael and Ilana. If you know who that is, then you're an in-person. If you don't, just enjoy it. Uh, I repeat, I'm still one half of a lecture short, so I'm looking for somebody to step forward or one or two people to cover the last half lecture, and then I'm done, because I have five, <laughs> this is six parts, and I have five and a half out of six covered, so I do hope some will relieve me of that burden of having to mention that all the time. Um, I want to thank, as you can see up here, all the people and tech crew that Pachki with everything, and do it, uh, you know, so efficiently. And with that, uh, we jump right into our topic. There's always plenty to talk about, and as I said, tonight is called The French Revolution and the Political Fate of the Jews. Uh, we were talking about the... You can't hear? Raise your hand if you... Oh. How about now? Okay, okay, great. Thank you. Is it possible to move this a little bit closer over here? I'll just, yeah. I don't trust myself on anything. It's not a problem. Okay. Everybody fine? All right, I'll try. And then where to put my papers? As I, I'll start again. Uh, we're talking, of course, as I mentioned yesterday, about the old regime, what they call the French, the Ancien Regime, which was uh, before the French Revolution. And uh, now let's address ourselves to the political question or the situation of the Jews, who you will remember, or maybe not, were in the old days, in every country of the world, without exception, what we call in the Chumash Ger Toshav, right? resident alien, I mean, you never actually Ezrachim, you never citizens. It wasn't possible to be a citizen because every country was a religious corporation. Every country in Europe, for example, was a Christian corporation. That's what the country was. There was no such thing as a secular country. That idea didn't exist. Um, England is there for all the English Christians to get together and worship God in the right way. They might have fights as they did over what's the right way, but nevertheless, they're all pointing in the same direction. Same thing with every other country in Europe. So if you are a Jew, obviously you're a guest. You can't be because you're not a Christian. You don't expect it. 
that the Jews agree Bourbon France is a Christian country. That's all. Uh, you know, it's, it's not a, a plus or a minus. It's what it is. So then the question becomes like this. So what do Jews want? What were the political agenda of the Jewish people in all the countries that they lived for 15, 1600 years, and even more than that, back in the Roman days, what is it, the ideal that they desired, other than to live in Eretz Yisrael under messianic conditions? What did they want? So the answer is, if you're going to be practical, if you ask Rashi, or Rambam, or any of those type of people, or anyone, just like this. I want a, a status quo, minus the harsh gezeras. You know, we're not citizens. Let us live here. Let us uh, make a living. Uh, you know, we have autonomous courts and communities. We're not part of your society. We don't claim to be. We're not looking to be. Don't want to vote in your elections. Uh, we're not part of your uh, corporation. We're part of our own. Let us have our own neighborhood or something like that. And uh, basically, like you live in the United States of America, if you wish. If you wish. Ask a Satmar Jew living in Monroe in New York. Where do you Just leave me alone, like Greta Garbo, you know? Pay my taxes, right? Pay the law, and just, you know, that's it. Uh, that's, that's what they saw as the uh, positive uh, uh, kind of conditions. Now, um, listen, harsh laws, Jews can pass on themselves. I mentioned the other day that they had the Familiantin Gazette, the Familiant Laws, which means that the French government in Alsace and other governments in Europe passed laws that only one member of the family can get married. Jewish communities used to pass laws like that. If you don't make enough money, you're not allowed to get married in the Kehillah. Can you believe it? Because then you're going to have kids who are beggars, and it's going to jack up the rates of the Sezaka. And this is, quote-unquote, from Jews. So it sounds like antithetical to everything we would imagine. And if you go back long enough, especially in places like France and Germany, there were Jewish places because the taxes were very hard. The, uh, the, the, the economic situation was very desperate. And they felt that this was something they're ready to do, even though, oh, let's put it this way, it never happened in a Hasidic environment. But it did happen in other ones. So uh, just minus the harsh Gazeros. The Portuguese Jews who live in the Sephardim in southern France, you know, fancy-schmancy, and the Ashkenazic Jews, the Yiddish-speaking in uh, eastern France and in Alsace, they all want to retain the autonomous coercive communities. I want to be the president of the community and tell everybody what to do, you know, boss around. They like that. They only differed on cultural insularity. The Jews, the Ashkenazic Jews, wanted to be, like I said before, Greta Garbo, leave me alone. I live among other people, but I want to hang around just with my own and speak Yiddish with my own and go to my synagogue and hang around other Jews and, you know, go to a shir and that sort of thing. Even though I see my customers and people with whom I do business every day, but I have nothing to do with them other than that. A social intercourse is more or less unheard of. Uh, that's what we like it. And I'm not interested in the French language. Uh, many Frenchmen were not interested in the French language. France had many provinces in which they didn't speak French. Right? Not only that, they had many provinces in which the French they spoke were like crazy, and the revolution got rid of that. But that's well known. So, I mean, let's put it this way. France has many Italian um, provinces that they conquered, German ones, uh, Walloon, you know, Belgian ones, and so forth, in the history of uh, France. And so the Jews don't speak French. A lot of people don't speak French. Uh, they're not interested in reading the French books. They're not reading in, 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 in the French poetry and Moliere and all that business. That's not who they are. The Spidermark, because they're trying to integrate. They want to be uh, European. 
So they differ on cultural insularity, but they had a lot in common. Now to get specific. <coughs> until, eight, until 1780, that's a long time. In French society, the problems of French Jewry were not sexy. You know, nobody wanted to talk about it. Voltaire and all the big writers uh, were quite anti-Semitic. So people who are the leaders of thought and write the books and, and articles that everybody reads couldn't give a darn for the Jews. They, did, they strongly disliked the Jews. All the Jews are junk. Um, Voltaire and Diderot and Saint-Denis and a lot of these guys that we learned in high school and college were famous uh, people thought the Jews are terrible and there's something genetically uh, bad about them and they're pretty much unreformable, at least the Ashkenazic ones. And uh, therefore they don't deserve anything. So if they're suffering, good, keep it up. You know, like that. So I'll say it again, the leaders of enlightened uh, thought were uh, quite anti-Semitic. The new king, who had recently come on the throne, Louis XVI, back in 1774, uh, was not an especial hater. He wasn't a lover of Jews, but he wasn't a hater. He's better than the ones before him. He himself was a nice guy, basically. Moderately enlightened, especially for Bourbon. You know, the famous lines, the Bourbons remember nothing and forgot nothing. You know, they're, you know, they're very reactionary. So, uh, in his first year in office, he uh, bestowed citizenship on a Jew, on Surf Bear, the rich guy who supplied the army. Remember that? The richest Jew in France. So, uh, that was con- to, to give one Jew out of 50,000, you know, uh, citizenship was considered a big deal. You know, you can live wherever you want. But that's it, <laughs> you know? And that's just because he's what they call court Jew, and he's done great services and continues to do great services for the government, for the army, all the rest. It's a highly exceptional situation. The rest of the Jewry is a junk. But at that time in the 1780s, although in France and Germany certainly, and most other places, people had the same opinion of Jews, everybody knew that there does exist one exception. There is a Jew that doesn't fit the mold, and he's not because he's an army supplier or a rich guy or anything like that. It's just very unusual. He's a civilized guy and a nice guy and an enlightened person, all the rest of it, and he puts on tefillin every day. And this is Moses Mendelssohn. They could never quite figure him out. Okay? Um, there's a famous exception. He was, after all, a member. There's Mendelssohn in the famous picture with uh, Gotthold Lessing, who's like the Shakespeare of Germany. And, you know, this is an idealized picture. He's talking with Lavater, the Swiss um, Calvinist pastor who's trying to convert him. But look how civilized they are and all the rest of it. Mendelssohn, in other words, it's not simply that he was a talking monkey, you know, that he could uh, read and write European languages, which are people that, but it's more than that. He said he, he's not like the other Jews. See, see the other Jews hate the Goyim. It's, I'm telling you, this is what people thought. That's how people thought. They hate us. They like to kill us if they could. They just don't have the chance. Therefore, we should have nothing to do with them and use them only, as I said yesterday, of service and own sufferance because they really are bad people. And uh, that's how their religion brings them up. The Talmud inculcates this into them from the time they're born, is that they're misanthropic. Somehow or other, this guy's not like, you know, he, he got out of it. Like you'd say today, I found a Muslim preacher who was a genuine liberal. Aren't too many of those. Yeah? So that's what he said, Mendelssohn. Um, and he was a member of the Republic of Letters. Let's go to the next one. Right? Uh, <laughs> can you understand this? It's just, you know, he was really into uh, the philosophical discourse. He published books, he published articles in, in important journals. I fear that in the end, the famous debate among materialists, idealists, and dualists amounts to a merely verbal dispute that is more a matter for the linguist than for the speculative philosopher. Uh, <laughs> who even understands what that sentence means? That's the point. 
They said, wow, I can't understand a word of it. And, right? He's a member of the Republic of Letters. This was the international fraternity of intellectuals who wrote each other fancy letters across Europe of highfalutin stuff. So he's a Jew, like I said before, and he didn't convert. And he didn't leave Judaism. He's not a Spinoza or anything like this. He's a Shomer Shabbos. Like I said before, he puts on Tefillin every day, which is a fact. You know what I mean? And uh, nevertheless, he's into this. So they, they, he's an exception. Um, the Gentiles respect him. At least many intellectuals do. Mendelssohn uh, actually wrote a, a bestseller uh, on the death of Socrates, which is just a theme to talk about the question in German of the immortality of the soul. Is there, is there a soul? And if there is, is it immortal? Which is not a topic for philosophy today, but was at that time. And uh, it, it really touched a, a button because all of Europe went gaga over this book. Uh, which, by the way, is very traditional, argues for life after death, argues for the immortality of the soul, argues for a loving deity and all the rest. So people really wanted to, and in a philosophical way, in a very elegant German, and he wrote this not long after he was out of yeshiva. He never had a, a day of, of secular education. So people said, like, wow, how did this happen? Okay. Um, and Mendelssohn is a Yiddish Yid, as we see over here. He's not one of these guys who turned his coat on his people, turned his back on his people. He helps other Jewish communities when he can. Since he was able to read and write European languages, and he was a refined uh, person, so there were many times that Jewish communities in different places that were facing expulsion problems or taxation problems or whatever kind of xeris would write to Mendelssohn in Yiddish, of course, and say, listen, help us with this situation over here because we don't know how to talk to the Duke. We don't know how to talk to a cardinal, but you do, and you'll get your action. And he did. Right? He didn't say, well, you know. Matter of fact, even when he disagreed with them, in the famous case about uh, whether he should bury somebody right away or give it 72 hours, he still wrote on their behalf because he said like this, you know, the right or wrong is one thing, but the persecution shouldn't be there. Um, and so it's not surprising that in 1780, in the middle of the reign of uh, Louis XVI, the leading Jew in France, Serf Bear, the leading Ashkenazic Jew, who's a from guy, gets the idea of asking Mendelssohn to draft a nice letter to the French royal government pleading the case of the Jews, that they should be treated not so harshly. Because they had all these rules and uh, regulations, especially in Alsace. It was really tough. He said, you know, you explain to them in a way that I can't um, not to do it. Serf Bear knows that if he gives it to Mendelssohn, Mendelssohn will never say a dumb thing. Right? It's not like one of these people calling up on the talk shows, ready to say, oh my God, what's going to happen now? You know? The Mendelssohn never said a dumb thing. So consequently, uh, he wrote to him, and, and, and Surf Bear sends him his suggestions. Says, this is the, what I'd like you to, the points to get across to the French government. And he asks, and he says, like this, can you turn it into something elegant and logical? Mendelssohn was a wise person, and he asked his non Jewish friend, who's the Undersecretary of State, in Prussia, the State Department. Uh, well, you write it. Because, obviously, it'll have more traction if it comes from a non-Jew. It's, it's true. And so you've got Christian Wilhelm Dohm, who is obviously not Jewish, and he was a high official under Frederick the Great, who was an extremely anti-Semitic king. Uh, but he was a college-educated guy, and he was a member of the Enlightenment, and he said, you write something in French, because he could. Of course, all the uh, educated people could write in French. Frederick the Great spoke French more than he spoke German, if you know who he was. And, uh, and, and, and have a go at it. Uh, so he gave him the suggestions of Surf Bear, and he said, write this up if you wouldn't mind for the King of France and the government. 
Dome's memorandum asked for the maintenance of the autonomous coercive community, but fewer legal disabilities, as I said before. The memoir argued that exemption from the annual habitation tax, that's a special tax just to live, <laughs> right? Besides the regular taxes. It's like you say, in addition to tuition and health insurance, all the rest of it, if you're Jewish, you have a habitation tax. So can you do an habitation tax should be granted to the infirm and the elderly? Tax break for the older Jews, for those who are sick. To rabbis, cantors, and school teachers as officers of the nation, meaning of the Kehillah. So, you know, they get low salaries anyway, so you can give them a, a, a tax break. And it's, it's in the interest of the government to maintain religious officials because they help keep the law in order and fear God and people. You get it? Uh, without fixed residence, next, that the rights of residence should be transmissible from father to son. No longer should the son on marriage and foundation of family have to repurchase the right of citizen, okay, and uh, get rid of this body tax of three livers a day, especially in relation to Strasbourg, Zonerous as humiliating, should be abolished. Meaning he had very specific goals. He didn't say... Uh, pass the Civil Rights Legislation Act, but can you give a little bit of an upgrade over here? Get rid of some of these stupid things. Um, it protested at length against the obstacles of reservation of forged receipts because some anti-Semites uh, spread around a whole bunch of fake uh, receipts for uh, money lenders. Get it? Now, I don't have to pay you. Here's my uh, receipt that you gave me when I paid up. Somebody forged them all. This guy, hell, who I mentioned yesterday, he forged them all. And that created a, a financial havoc, as you might say. And the government should do something about that. Uh, the Jews of Alsace have freedom of commerce comparable to the, the other Jews who live in these places. The right to purchase land and property without constraint and hindrance should be granted. So you can't buy real estate. The right to take up residence anywhere in Alsace. God forbid, we're not saying that the Jews can move anywhere in France. But at least in the local town. Why should you be stuck like a prisoner in your little village? Which was the rules. I'll tell you, there were a thousand rules and regulations that hits you every day if you're Jewish. And he said, like I said before, just a little bit of, a, 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 of an improvement, okay? Uh, the man of the rabbinical judgment social matter should not be subject to appeal before courts. There's Surf Bear, the poom and the Akrut. There's the uh, guy in charge of the Kehillah. Uh, the Kehillah wants that the Bezdin, which is an arm of the Kehillah, should have its uh, rulings um, respected by the French courts. They should be overturned like that. Um, so is this liberal or not liberal? Get what I'm saying? It's not your classic liberal. It's liberal in the sense of old-fashioned conservative. We want the status quo without the extra little thousand gazeras, uh, as they call them over here. Uh, that the preposés have the power to impose fines on court order and the court of two preposés, these are gaboim, and two rabbis enjoy the power to do cherem. So will you let us have the power to excommunicate people in our community who won't pay the tax or won't listen to the rules? The moment concluded that children baptized against their parents' wishes be given the freedom of the, uh, the new religion up to the age of 12, and so on and so forth. Imagine that. They're baptized against the will of the parents, but in the old existing regulations, once it's done, it's done. Can you give us a thing that, you know, uh, the kid can pull back up to the age of 12? So this, this, that, and that, that's, that's the old regime, as they call it over here. This is what you tried to do, if you were a Jewish lobbyist in uh, Italy, in France, in the German states, in Central Europe, in Poland, you always pick on little things and you try to get them done. So he wasn't asking for a revolution. That's my point. Um, it took four years, but in 1784, 
because the royal government went very slow. Uh, Marie Antoinette, you know. So he says, 1784 produced results. Uh, a little bit. He, the king abolished this. <laughs> the body tax of three livers a day. Not this. <laughs> they got this. Well, that's something. Right? Because that means if you ha- imagine if everybody here had to pay, you know, speaking comparably, suppose you had to pay 30 bucks a day just to live in Baltimore because you're Jewish. You know? Some people can handle 30 bucks a day, and a lot of families it would be quite a burden, wouldn't it? You see what I'm saying? So, no, all, every day of the week? All year? Was that let up? That's what I'm trying to show you. On the other hand, the king's government, in order to show that they weren't too pro-Jewish, so they also passed extra laws increasing business residency and marriage restrictions on the Jews. <laughs> no, they added more of these. <laughs> okay? Oi, the ancien regime. The old regime. That, that, that's how life went in those days. Mendelssohn encouraged his Christian friend, whose name was Christian Wilhelm Dohm, uh, to publish a dedicated book on the subject about not civil rights for the Jews, but an upgrade, as I said before. These kinds of things, which he called... Uh, it's the first book ever on the subject, um, the first Enlightenment book on the subject of the Jews, and the title was Über der Bürgerliche Verbesserung der Juden, which the best English translation is Improving the Civic Status of the Jews. Maybe upgrade might be a better word. And improving the status is not the same thing as getting civil rights. Because it's a Christian country. So we don't want equality, God forbid. But how about this, that, and the other, some of these stupid things? Okay? Uh, this is the first book anybody ever wrote on the subject of the Jewish uh, civil situation. Uh, nobody cared about him. And now for the first time, somebody who is not a nobody, first of all, he's an educated person, second of all, he's an undersecretary of state, I mean, you know, that's, that's something, is writing a serious book about maybe we should improve uh, in the sense that we're talking about, in the enlightened sense, in the efficiency sense, uh, get more bang for the buck, more bang for the Jew, you know, like that. Um, and putting it out there in the world of ideas, because that's what you do when you publish an Enlightenment book. And this led to a European debate about the Jews for the first time ever. In other words, writers in Germany and in Holland and in France and this country all kicked in, and there were articles and books on this subject. Now, on the one hand, guys like Voltaire, etc., argue, uh, no, the reason the Jews are obnoxious is they have a defective DNA, which leads them to do bad things. Since they're not human beings, they should not be given civil rights. It sounds a little bit like Hitler, doesn't it? Matter of fact, Arthur Hertzberg, look what he says. Jews possess an inner, ineradicably different nature, which few can escape. Notice you just ha- have that uh, curse in you. Okay? Uh, Arthur Hertzberg, his father was a show, wrote a famous book in 1965. It's his dissertation, French Enlightenment and the Jews, in which he said the origins of Hitler is the French Enlightenment which like shocked everybody, but he's simply calling attention to what I'm talking about, okay? Because you think that these people were in favor of universal civil rights, all the rest of it. Ask Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> it's, it's not the French Enlightenment, right? Or at least many of them. And so um, that was out there, and that was a dominant discourse. On the other hand, you had people at Dome who argued, now listen closely to what I'm about to say. Uh, the Jews are not racially or genetically contaminated. Okay? The defects of the Jews, says Dome, have been created by the persecutors who have excluded them from society and limited them to most debasing of economic pursuits, leaving them entirely under the sway of their own rabbis and narrow tradition. With an increase in rights and better conditions, Jews will improve. What does that mean? 
First of all, you give them economic restrictions. And second of all, you force them back on their own from communities. That's the worst possible environment. How do you expect them to become civilized if they can't interact with normal people? So is Dome a, a liberal or not a liberal? Uh, well, let me tell you something. If you're mentally, you're Jewish, it's like this. You know, take the money, get it. In other words, if you can, if you can get somebody's stupid laws, uh, you know, abolished, uh, then I don't care what the argument is. You, you, you get what I'm saying? So get used to, because you're an American audience, and I know you don't know this, but the Europeans have a different tradition, and uh, thank God this country has a different tradition than Europe. That's one of the reasons they started the United States of America, because they didn't want bad old Europe. And one of the parts of bad or bad old Europe is this kind of thinking. Okay? They see it through their lenses. Um, the interesting debate did not get very far in Germany because he wrote one book pro-Jewish and 10, 20 guys wrote books anti. Oh, they were famous people. Uh, but it did engage the uh, interest of the Austrian emperor. Uh, just a second. In other words, this guy, who's the emperor of a big empire, read the book. And he liked, and he's anti-Semitic, but... Like Dome and the others, he says, I like the appeal to efficiency. In other words, the Jews are bad, the rabbis are bad, the Jewish tradition is bad, all the rest of it. But you know something? If you air them out, they'll stop the smell. Let them out, let, let them out more in society and compel them to engage with others and uh, on their own. You know, they, they, they'll, they'll change and be better. And it led to the Edict of Toleration of 1780. In other words, he read the book and then published a famous uh, law, set of laws, in which he abolished many uh, existing stupid little laws against the Jews, but with a quid pro quo that you've got to assimilate. Okay? Um, from the point of view of the Jews, the Edict of Toleration was a mixed bag. Even Moses Mendelssohn, let's go to the next one. Moses Mendelssohn, who was a quote-unquote left-winger in the culture, in the subject of cultural insularity, said, I don't know if the emperor has in mind emancipation or amalgamation. Is this they want to convert us. Which, of course, was the case. Because if you're a European Christian in the 1700s, you can't help thinking the highest level of life is to be a white European Christian. <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm doing you a favor by raising you up. You know, they can't help think like that. Um, now, uh, let's put it this way. As far as Gentile Europe was concerned, the Edict of Toleration was a daring and epic-making. In other words, whatever the... Savara behind it, the fact that the guy is willing to abolish a lot of these uh, restrictions and dumb rules on the Jews is like something unheard of before, whatever his reasons. And it marked Joseph II, the Emperor of Austria, as an extreme liberal, whatever his reasons were. And this made, in the 1780s, which is just before the French Revolution, that's in 1789, this made, in the 1780s, the quote-unquote Jewish question, the hot topic of French intellectuals in the 1780s. Obviously, the negative thinkers spoke like Voltaire. There's no surprise over there. You're going to have that. But on the other hand, a number of enlightened French thinkers favor improving Jewish civil rights situation, and their opinions got noticed. It's not all about Voltaire. Toleration, which is a new concept, toleration, religious toleration, is in the air among the intellectuals in the 1780s. It had a spur because of the American Revolution. You know, Benjamin Franklin was over in France. These ideas, you know, got out there even among nobles who weren't doing it themselves, but it became fashionable. Uh, in 1787, the regime eased up on the Protestants 
which was interesting because France had always destroyed and crushed and killed the Protestants ever since 1680s. And uh, they persecuted them very severely. And now they stopped. And that was to the applause of enlightened public opinion. So this led in the following year, 1788, to the Malazerbs Commission of one of the famous uh, ministers of the government, Christian Malazerbs, who was a macher under King Louis XVI. We eased up on the Protestants. Now let's take a look at the Jews. Now, very slow, it's the old government, and very, uh, you know, let's put it this way, want to, don't want to go too far. Um, and it's definitely because the Jews are stupid and this, and that, and the other stuff. So anything we do to liberalize is in the hope that they'll convert. But nevertheless, they started to start to discuss it, but it's too little, too slow, and too late. Because it's 1788, and you know or it's coming very soon. They didn't, but we know. Um, the, one of the most uh, famous uh, writers of the 1780s is Count Mirabeau. Right? Honoré Mirabeau, uh, who's a brilliant intellectual. Don't ask me about his personal life. This is France over here. What do you want? But, but what do you call it? But as, but as, as an intellectual and, a, and a, a fighter for intellectual freedom and political freedom, all the rest of it, he's a very famous writer, brilliant, you know, a French intellectual. And he says, you know, look at Mendelssohn. They could all be like that. Get it? You see, the Jews are not, as I said, for monkeys. The Jews are not genetically, uh, you know, something inferior. It can work. Right? Uh, look at this. Influenced by the enlightened members of the Jewish communities in the capitals of these three countries, because Mirabeau was sent by the French government on a mission to Prussia and England and uh, Holland. So uh, in Prussia, he met Mendelssohn, and in England, Holland, he met the, you know, relatively free Jews. He was particularly attracted by the image of Mendelssohn. In a book re uh, resulting from his journey, on, look at the title of the book. Sir Moses Mendelssohn, notice, Concerning Moses Mendelssohn and the Political Reform of the Jews. Wow. Uh, he's not a paid friend of Mendelssohn. He's a French intellectual who's coming up with this on his own. Uh, he argued that the faults of the Jews were those of his circumstances. Although his main reason was admiring Mendelssohn was that humanity and truth was clearer to Mendelssohn than the dark phantom of the Talmudist, meaning that Mendelssohn had liberated himself from the narrow-minded Orthodox Judaism, as he saw it, Mirabeau did not consider Judaism an immoral faith, and he defended against tax from old and new. In the course of his argument, he repeated Dome's assertion, the Jew is more of a man than he is of a Jew. Now, deep down, he's just a, a, a human being. Okay? Quoting from Turgon Russo, in support of his pro-Jewish arguments, Mirabeau affirms that history proves that the Jews, considered as men as citizens, notice, looking from that point of view, were greatly corrupted only because they were denied their rights. So you put them in a ghetto, and you make them hang around themselves, and you give them no life outside the synagogue, and all that business, then they're going to turn inward. Like Dome, he advocated preserving some measure of Jewish autonomy. I didn't say he'd get rid of the Jewish Kehillahs, which had legal powers. A view developed in the memorandum of Frederick the Great, but he envisaged it as a transitory phenomenon. The organized Jewish community would wither away and die, as the Jews enter fully into economic and social life of the majority. These are absolutely French views. That, uh, you know, give the Jews uh, the civil rights, and that will get rid of the Jewish stuff we don't like on its own. You have to shove it down anybody's uh, 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 thing with the point of a bayonet. It's happening on its own. By the way, this is a great book. He has all the lush and horror about Frederick the Great here. It's uh, Givaldi. Now, he met him, he knows, he knows everything that's going on. The, uh, he, he's the one that had the famous line, Prussia is not a country with an army, 
it is an army with a country. Right? Um, anyhow, uh, and then you had uh, a famous uh, cleric, a uh, 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 Catholic uh, priest, Abbe Grégoire, who uh, is even more so. I mean, he's a Catholic priest. He believes the Jews are cursed, this and the other, but it's doable. If you liberate them from all these stupid laws and, you know, let them move among the uh, civilized people, they will better themselves. You catch more flies with honey, he says. And most Jews will convert if they gallicize, if they become French. And this was true, because that is what happened in the 19th century. Uh, but I want to point out, this is the best you're going to get from the French liberals. You know, it's not uh, America. Now, um, <laughs> Europe is not America. Uh, Thomas Jefferson Alexander Hamilton didn't write like that. But in Europe, you take what you get. Um, meanwhile, hold that thought, totally separate from the Jews, among the Gentiles in France, time marches on. It's the 1780s. As the reign of Louis XVI progresses, the national debt gets worse and worse, and the king cannot get out from under the debt. What are we going to do in America when it's $30 trillion, and when it's $40 trillion, and when it's $50 trillion? I mean, seriously, what are you going to do? And $60 trillion, what are you going to do? Um, he's not prepared to take decisive reforms that would have eased the situation. You know, those fundamental structural reforms. End internal polls. Abolish the corvée, you know, the forced labor by the peasantry. Uh, end the guilds, because they have the monopoly and nobody can get a job or start a store unless you're a member of a guild. Nationalize the wealth of the church, because the church owns so much land and gets so much tax and it doesn't go to anybody. And divide the land among the peasantry. Reform the archaic laws. Get rid of Versailles and balance the doggone budget. You understand? He can't, he can't do it. We can't do it in America. Right? How, would you, how, how could you get rid of a $20 trillion debt? You'd have to seriously cut Social Security and the defense, and this ain't going to happen. Right? It's not going to happen. He had the same problem, so we shouldn't look down on Louis XVI. We got the, we got the same issue over here, okay? Now, uh, instead of doing these things administratively, meaning, instead of saying, let's make a move now as King of France, get rid of the in internal tolls. Let's make a move as the King of France to get rid of the peasants having to do slave labor two days a week for the uh, Lord. Let's do a, a business, you know, to balance the budget. Instead of making structural changes, he summons something that hadn't been done for over 150 years, an estate's general to appeal for funding, but for a flawed system, because he doesn't get it. The guy was not too bright. Meaning, for the first time, he said, let's get the representatives. This is, they hadn't done this in France since the 1614. This is 1789. He said, let's get the representatives of the people. There's three estates. The clergy, the nobles, and the regular common people, which he means the tax-paying middle class. That's the regular common people. The little people don't count. Uh, in there, as you used to do in the old days, and the king will appeal for them, because we have a national budget crisis to uh, raise the money. Uh, that wasn't too smart. Because when you do, if, if I go to ask for money, first thing you want to do is you're going to say, well, let me see your budget, let me see how you're spending the money. You know, I start asking you questions. And uh, if you're not prepared to do that kind of business, don't go to the bank, right? Right? So uh, he allows, let's put it this way, who, who are going to be representatives of the nobles? The top nobles. Who are going to be representatives of the Catholic Church? the cardinals and all those big guys, who are going to be representatives of what they call the third estate, the mass of people, uh, have to have elections. Whoa, whoa. 
and the king was dumb enough to allow real elections. Whoa, that's a mistake. Why is that a mistake? Who gets elected? Charismatic people, otherwise they don't get elected. Right? Somebody can read and write and appeal to a crowd, otherwise how do you get elected? Whoa, not a good idea. Those guys had big mouths and asked questions like, what's happened with the money? Why is your wife... You know, wearing uh, you know the the fear of the necklace, and uh, you know, and and why why if the if the budget is going bad, did you buy uh, five hundred new horses and so on and so forth? Questions that kings in France are not comfortable in answering. You see, and so um, you end up with charismatic delegates who want a piece of the action. The king desires, as every president of the United States desires, a pliant cash cow. Just pass the taxes, right? Just give me the money. Fragnish Kankashas. You understand? You know, it doesn't work like that in America, except in the most rare of uh, circumstances. I spoke about this the other day in Florida. Do you know how they built the A-bomb? A-bomb? World War II? Cost $15 billion. Once upon a time, that was money. Where, 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 where do you do that? This is the old America. General George Marshall, who was like George Washington, went to Speaker of the House, 1942, Sam Rayburn, and he said like this, I want you to give me $15 billion and don't ask what I'm going to do with it. You trust me or you don't trust me? You know, I could put it in my bank account, right? So you trust me or you don't trust me? And Sam Rayburn said, I trust you. I know you. And Sam Rayburn went to 15 committee heads in the Congress. And he said, yes, everybody here is going to stick an extra billion in the budget so the enemy won't know what's happening. And you're going to give me the money. And you're not going to ask what I'm doing with it. And they said, we trust you. And that's how they built it. That's a very unusual situation, you know? It was a war, special case. And anyway, Marshall was Marshall and Rayburn was Rayburn. You don't get, this is not going to happen with Trump. It's not going to happen with Clinton. It's not going to happen with Obama. Okay? Somebody said, give me $15 billion. My goodness. So um, it wasn't going to happen in France. It wasn't going to happen in France. And so um, the third estate does not want to be a cash cow. It wants to become like England, the House of Commons. Let's have a say. Uh, we all know what happened in England. When the king messed with the House of Commons, <laughs> they chopped his head off. That's the English Civil War, Charles I, right? Um, we all know, because we live in Maryland. Maryland's named after his wife, Henrietta Mariah, Maryland, right? So, uh, you, don't, <laughs> you don't mess with a real parliament. France never had a mere parliament. They said, well, you do now. <laughs> you do, and you call this into session. You got one now, and it ain't going away. Immediately, the third estate, which is the mass of people, uh, feels its power. Here's a famous, uh, very famous uh, article written by the uh, Abbe, uh, by, uh, what do you call it, the Abbe Siez, in French. He says, what is the third estate? It's everything. It's the whole country. That, the, it's the part of the country that does stuff. What has been until now? Nothing. What does it want to be? Something. Because who controls the whole government? The nobles, the clergy, you know, the king. We pay the taxes, we create the wealth, and you guys spend it. Uh, I don't like that. Excuse me. And so, uh, all of a sudden, the king said, "What did I do? What have I done?" The king proved to be a disaster at politics. That's not what he was good at. He had a number of options. The easiest option, especially looking back, would be do like England. Just say, "Fine, we'll have a constitutional government. I'll live in a palace. The Queen of England has a good life." as I see, is indoor work and no heavy lifting, you know? They, uh, you can be like an English-type constitutional monarch, which would have been perfect for Louis XVI, who was a dork anyway, you know? 
he wasn't. He, he wasn't. No, seriously, he wasn't a Louis XIV, one of these guys that wanted to run the country. All the rest of it. He born the king. He, without being funny about it, he just wanted to do a good job. You know, he wanted to be the king of France, like his forefathers were. Fine, like you know, you live in your palace. You have your white horses. You have three meals a day. You know, to take care of it, and just sign the doggone bills that the Congress passes. What do you, What do you care? I mean, I take the money, wouldn't you? Uh, he couldn't see it that way. He tries to maintain the old system, the equality of the other two estates, because he said this is the medieval estates. So, no, you know, the third estate has a certain vote, and the nobles have a certain vote, and the high clergy, the cardinals and the bishops, have a certain vote. They're all equal. Well, really? That brought him much resentment and contempt. And those, what did he fight for the nobles for? What did he fight for the church for? And in the end, the third estate became the ruling power. The king had no choice but to go along. It's very famous. He tried to fire them and go home, and they ran to a tennis court, and they all took an oath in which they said, we're not leaving until we become a parliament. And he was not the type of guy to kill him or something like that. That's not who he was. And so he said, okay, then you're here, you're here. Uh, the new parliament, which is what it became, was the first democratically elected governing body in French history. I mean, the old way had to be male, tax-paying voters, but okay, that's what we had in this country. When the king was perceived by the public to be, pl by the public to be planning, and here you can show this uh, now, to, uh, uh, they thought the king is going to uh, get rid of the newly forming public, that's when they rioted and stormed the Bastille. Right? This is what it was. Uh, it wasn't so much a, a tyranny, and actually the Bastille was empty, didn't have anybody in there. They had one or two people. He was actually getting rid of it anyway. But it was a symbol, right? And look at the mobs running around crazy because the people went... In other words, it provoked the mob. Now, this is not the uh, third estate, is it? They're middle class, you know, bankers and shopkeepers and uh, journalists and writers and professors, but the public is going crazy and they're rushing the royal fort. And the worst part of it is as we all know, they were successful in destroying it, and then the army tries to stop them, right? And first they succeed, but in the long run they don't succeed, and you get the general idea. This is a movie, obviously. Uh, and no, we have really there. And that's, that's enough for now. Let's put it this way. When they stormed the Bastille, they killed everybody in it. They chopped off the heads and paraded around the street. They went crazy bloody, and from then on, the revolutionary mobs is bad news. It, it frightens the middle class as much as anyone else. Imagine if you had in Baltimore. It's not too hard to imagine in Baltimore. To go crazy like this, it, it's, it's, it's the worst nightmare. Right? It's the worst nightmare. So what I'm trying to get across is this image of the Storm of the Bastille is what everybody thinks of the French Revolution. And I get it. And they certainly will have that aspect of it. But that's not what the French Revolution was. The French Revolution was a slowly evolving business of the middle class we're trying to take power in a George Washington type way, you know. Let's become a genuine parliament, and then you know have the people's representatives. Who and when I say people's representatives, not like nowadays, the people means the people pay taxes, the people who do stuff. So the, because otherwise you have a terrible situation. You don't make any money, and you jack up the social security and then employment and the welfare and all the rest of it. Because why not? You know, it's not coming out of your pocket. You're just going to get. So this is always the the great uh, problem with uh, republics when you have universal suffrage, uh, that the non-taxpaying people get to vote. But in those days, it wasn't like that in the French Revolution. So they wanted to say, why can't we be like England? That's what everybody said. Why can't we be like England? Uh, we don't want this. 
correct? We don't want everybody, you know, the women going crazy and taking pikes and, and, and everybody was chopped in half with axes and they stabbed with these uh, things. Maybe I'll show you a horror thing another later. Um, the successful third estate uh, immediately set about uh, reforming the country. They said, we're now a real parliament. Uh, we're going to make this work and we're going to now enact in law through majority vote, through an organized parliamentary system, the change of France. The parliament called itself the National Assembly, and they had right-wingers, and they had left-wingers, and middle, because, you know, they had votes from all over the country. They now debated the future of France, and they started writing a constitution, just like America, like other countries. And the first thing they did was to say that uh, the National Assembly is abolishing the feudal system entirely, one month after the Bastille. They pass this resolution. That's radical. What does that mean? Um, the peasants no longer have to pay. Let's put it this way. The nobility is no longer the nobility, and the church is no longer the church in law. And so the peasants don't have to pay taxes to the church. They don't have to pay taxes to the nobles, because why should they? Instead uh, of paying a whole bunch of crazy little fees, you know, the tithes and the corvées and the extra this and the three livres for every day and all that business, you just pay taxes to the state, like everybody does, in a uniform manner. All Frenchmen are citizens of France, period. You were a marquee until now, but now you're just a regular person. You can give your title all you want. It doesn't mean anything in law. Once upon a time, in the old regime, if a marquee goes in the court against a peasant, who's going to win? You know. So now everybody's supposed to be equal. Of course, that's never really true. Right? If a millionaire goes in the court against a poor person, even the United States of America, who's going to win? But nevertheless... At least the law shouldn't be written to enshrine special privileges for people just because of their birth. All Frenchmen are citizens of France, and the National Assembly did away with a host of traditional legal distinctions based on birth. Okay, Howard, let's show the next thing. Uh, the nobles do not protest the church because they're afraid of the peasants going crazy. This is right at that time. called the Jacquerie when the Jacques, when the regular guys go wild, the peasants. So when you start to have this, the nobles immediately say, yes, we don't protest, we give up our noble rights, just introduce law and order. Okay? So it wasn't even a fight. Uh, because all over France this happened. And the result was, from the liberal point of view, great, we just got rid of one stroke 
by one session of the Congress or the National Assembly, you know, this problem and this problem and that problem, no more uh, tolls every time you pass through a nobleman's, uh, you know, estate on a regular highway, no more, as I say, 10% going to the church for nothing, no more extra taxes to, you know, to pay for the noble lady's uh, new coach, uh, this and that and the other, you know, one situation after another. No more girls being abused by the nobility and can't do anything about it. You know, things like that. And so um, they were scared. So this is great. No more guilds. They introduced trial by jury. The National Assembly really undertook to do not crazy things, right? Nothing I said until now is crazy. They said, we want to fix up the country. It should have been done 100 years ago. The ground was being laid for doing away with all kinds of distinctions, including, including, not confined to, legal distinctions based on religion. Legal distinctions based on religion. Um, should there be laws saying the Protestants can't do this, that, and the other? After all, you're getting rid of stupid laws about the nobles, you're getting rid of stupid laws about the special position of the Catholic Church. If the Catholic Church doesn't have a special position anymore, then what position does it have? Is this a religion? Is it a private business? Or at the most, if it's not a private business, is something the state regula- uh, recognizes as one option for you know, worshiping God. Well, what about the Calvinists? What about the Lutherans? What about the Baptists? And what about the Jews? Right? So the Jews weren't a major element of the French Revolution, but they're a piece of it, and that's the part we're interested in. Uh, two weeks after the, declaration, the uh, uh, Constitution was passed, uh, the, the new assembly passes what they call the Declaration of Rights of Man. Right? Which is a month after the Bastille. Look, look how quickly they moved. Read this. All men are born free and equal in rights. Social distinctions are founded on the only good. doesn't matter another if you're a nobleman. The goal of any political association is the conservation of the natural and perceptible rights of man, which are liberty, property, safety, and resistance against oppression. That's the job of any king. So this is a French form of Jeffersonianism. Who helped write this? Lafayette. Who did Lafayette consult when he wrote this? The American ambassador in France. Who's the American ambassador in France? Thomas Jefferson. Okay. Uh, the principle of any sovereignty re- resides essentially in the nation, not in the king, not in divine right business. No body, individual, can assert authority, which doesn't come from the people. You know? Till now, the king said like this, my rights come from God. They're going to beat you up. No. No rights come from anybody, come from, from bottom up. Liberty consists of doing anything which doesn't harm others. Interesting definition. Thus, the exercise of natural rights of each person has only those borders which assure other members of society fruition of these rights, and they can be determined only by law. That's Rousseau, social contract. Right? Social contract. Really? I don't mind you driving through the red light, but I've got to stop you because it could hurt somebody. So otherwise, I'm not taking your rights away, just what we need you know, to, to survive as a people. Besides, they can do what you want. The law has the right to forbid only actions harmful to society. Anything not forbidden by law is okay, cannot be impeded, can be restrained by what it does in order. The law is the expression of general will. All the citizens have the right of continuing personally to represent this formation. You can vote. You can express an opinion. You can lobby. You can do that kind of business. It must be the same for all, either it protects or it punishes. All the citizens equal and are equally admissible to public dignities and place in employments according to their capacity and without distinction other than that of their virtues and talents. Wait a minute. Let's go back to that. Let's go back to that. Is this true? All the citizens are equally admissible to public dignities according to their capacity without distinction on the virtues and talents. What about the Jews? Well, they're not citizens. 
Right? They're not citizens. But why not? You see, I'm saying that one thing leads to another. One question leads to why, why aren't they citizens? What is the reason? Is it because the state is now a Catholic? It's not Catholic? Right? Or let's put it this way. It's not un-Catholic, but it doesn't say it can only be Catholic. So what? Um, no one can be, eh, the law's penalties. You get the general idea. You know, no, everyone's innocent until he's proven guilty, and so on and so forth. Um, free communication. Look at this, Article 10. No one can be disturbed for his opinions, even religious ones, provided it doesn't trouble the public order established by law. So, you know, if you say, I guess I'm a worshiper of Kali, and my uh, uh, religious practice is to murder people once a month, that not, yeah. But, uh, yeah, no, not, not yet. But uh, if you just have a religion doesn't harm anybody else, then the state should not uh, bother you and interfere in it. So, what about if you're Jewish? Meaning, once you make these grand declarations, are you prepared to back them up? and be uh, consistent in them. That's all. It wasn't a Jew who wrote any of this stuff, right? They, they had no part in this whatsoever. Uh, but these are the ideas of the Enlightenment. And to tell you the truth, they're like Voltaire ideas, except Voltaire would say, no, not for Jews, because they're not human beings. As Gatenish does, once an hour, once an idea is out there, you don't control it anymore. That's like the principle of Lush and Har, isn't it? Once you say it, you don't own it anymore. So once you say all people are equal, or that sort of thing... You can't say except for. I mean, you can say it, but it won't have any kind of a punch to it. So this is what happened in the uh, French Revolution. They have new elections, and now it's called the Legislative Assembly, a real parliament. And France is still a king, is a monarchy. The French Revolution in its early phase was, as I said before, not what you think. I know about the Bastille and all that, that's true, but that was, that was exceptional. That's not what the French Revolution was. French Revolution was all these guys getting there from all the place and saying, let's fix up the country. So it's still a monarchy. It's a reforming monarchy. It's no longer the divine right of kings. It's rather the basis of monarchy is the will of the people. Okay? So the king has to serve the will of the people. But like I said before, Queen Elizabeth does it. I'd do it. You know, for that kind of a lifestyle, it's not bad. You know, it's, it's, it's not bad if you can get that work. Uh, it's about replacing waste with efficiency. Who are the middle class in France? It's business people. A business person doesn't like to see waste. Would you agree with that statement? Right? If you're, you're a professional, you're a doctor, a lawyer, a businessman, a shopkeeper, this and the other, you don't see your... your, 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 your it's, it's in your nature of the middle class, they don't like waste. Correct? That, that, that's, that's how you succeed in business. Okay? Um, and so... They want to uniformize all the provinces into what they call departments, département, which means break up France into uh, smaller pieces run by Paris in a, in a more logical way, instead of saying, since 1800 years ago, the province went like this, as it's always going to be. No, it doesn't make any sense. Don't do it like that. So redraw the maps of the states, so to speak. Um, introduce a standard French language to get rid of all this junk that I talked about before, what they call the patois. You know, people speak over here, it's a lousy French. People over there, it's a bad French. Now, today's standards, we look upon this with horror. You know, the modern Western intellectuals, oh, how can you make fun of somebody's uh, diet? They had no problem with that over there. We want the whole country to speak normal French and the same standard with the, with the vocabulary and with the grammar and all the rest of it, and that's the way it should be. It's a businessman's point of view. Um, a centralized national public school system, which they still have in France. The 10th grade, everybody has the same math book. The ninth grade, the whole country gets the same geography book. In America, we have a different tradition. We have local school boards, which come from a different, the American tradition, 
And every school board does, is its own boss and does whatever it wants, for better or for worse. In France and in Israel, it's one ministry of education, and all the teachers pass the same test or don't, and they all have the same uh, business and report cards to the whole country the same day, and so on and so forth. And that's how they see Then it's fair as they see it for everybody. Um, the revolution is moderate. It's not bloody. Uh, who is the main representative? Lafayette. Lafayette was not a radical, crazy nut. He wanted to bring in Americanism to the degree possible into France. America was not a crazy... This is the time of George Washington, of Jefferson and Hamilton and John Adams. What do they want? They want a free country, a normal country, a middle-class-run country, where, as I said before, only property owners pay taxes, but you have your basic rights, freedom of speech, you know, freedom of religion, freedom of assembly, that sort of business. What's wrong with that? It's a middle-class uh, revolution. One of the first things they do is they pass a law, strikes are illegal. <laughs> it's not communism. Middle class doesn't want strikes, obviously. Okay? So uh, if you're in the proletariat, if you're Marx, Karl Marx, you have a critique of the French Revolution. Right? He said there was the bourgeoisie uh, seizing the power and sticking it to the proletariat. Now I'm using Marxist term- terminology. But, but you see where he's coming from. Okay? Uh, the king... Uh, was uh, at this point seen as as not uh, cooperating, and the mob got crazy again, and they rushed the palace, and uh, in Versailles, and they forced him and his family transported back to Paris. Uh, it's because there was a certain riot, and some of the French soldiers shot at the rioters. They don't have to go into that. But when they seized the king physically and his family, these crazy ladies with the pikes and the spears, and they brought them all back to Paris is a step towards radicalism and violence. The French Revolution we're more familiar with. But for now, in 1789, it was just a step. So just the cause are over. You had July, the uh, Bastille. You had August, the meeting of the Congress and passing all these uh, reforms. Now it's September. The king gets uh, seized. Okay? Uh, now he's in, in Paris in the Tuileries Palace. And um, let's put it this way. The revolution is proceeding but it has tendencies, maybe, go in a violent direction. But so far, it's just trying to fix things up. In order to balance the budget and introduce fiscal responsibility, the parliament unilaterally nationalized the lands of the church. 20% of France belonged to the Catholic Church. They said, that's crazy. That's not a divine right. Who knows how the church got this way back when? We are now declaring it automatically, the property of the country, and what we're going to do is we're going to sell them out to all the people, and, uh, and with that money, we'll help balance the budget. Okay. So, if you're a real estate speculator at that time, whoa, um, they call assignats. Uh, they dissolved the monasteries because they said we don't need people who are unproductive and owning land and all the rest of it. And all of it should go to the public treasury because why shouldn't it? Why should the country be under a $20 trillion, uh, you know, uh, burden if there are logical ways of getting rid of it? The Catholics, of course, got angry at this. And all of France, there were Catholic uh, civil wars, you know, because they thought it's like a chil Hashem. Uh, the Legislative Assembly quarrels over specific reforms among itself. As time goes on, the Parliament starts passing more anti-church law because they want to demonstrate the absolute and ruthless supremacy of the state over the church. You can be a believer, but you can't be a clericalist. And that's true in France until today. They, they say, you want to be Catholic, that's fine. But no power to the church. The state must prevail until very recently... Now they ha- they're applying this to the Muslims in a very interesting way. You know, that's why they passed the Burqa law in France. Correct? They have a long tradition of this. But until very recently, um, 
And they only changed not long ago. There's no religious marriage. Meaning, you can have whatever ceremony you want. The only marriage that's recognized is the, is the one at City Hall. By the mayor, as they call it. You know, with the sash. So if you want to be legally recognized in France, they only changed it recently. Uh, then it has to be a civil ceremony. That's to give you an idea what I'm talking about. So uh, this all starts with the French Revolution. The Catholics and the nobles and the others hurt by the changes run away from the country. They start plotting and opposing. Sooner or later, you can already see a fight might possibly break out. But meanwhile, the assembly goes on its merry way. They legalize Protestantism, because why not? And by the time you get to December, so I took you from this fall Bastille, July, August, September, October, November, they're doing all this stuff. By the time you get to December, the Jews, <laughs> right? Yeah, you went through 1 through 6, through 16, through 25, to then. Item number, uh, you know, 92, what about the Jews, okay? How about emancipating the Jews? Uh, this is Clermont Tonnerre, uh, one of the famous, uh, you know, French intellectuals, a member of the National Assembly. Totally Catholic, you know, not really, not Jewish at all. I'll now deal with religion. You have addressed this point, stating in the Declaration of Rights that no one persecuted his religious belief. Is it now? Is it not profound persecution of the citizen to want to deprive him of his dearest right because of his opinions? Meaning, you're going to persecute somebody because in his heart he believes in Judaism. That's what he believes. The law cannot affect the religion of a man. It can take no hold over his soul. It can only affect his actions and if it's protect those actions when they do no harm to society. So if I want to be Jewish, or Muslim, or anything else, as long as I'm not bothering anybody else, actually the law should protect me, right? I shouldn't have to worry like they do in the South, that the KKK will bomb a, a, a synagogue or something like that, right? The law should protect me if I'm minding my own business and, and, and following my own religious belief and not harming anybody. That's all. God wanted us to reach agreement on ourselves on issues of morality, and he's permitted, so in other words, that's why religions come along. And he's permitted us to make moral laws, but he's given to no one but himself the right to legislate dogmas and rule over the conscience. And that's an old argument, which goes like this. You see what I'm doing? See what I'm doing? See what I did? See what I did? You see the, my tie? Okay. Now tell me what I'm thinking. Can't see it. Who made that? Why did God make it that way? But he made it. He made it that the outside stuff you can see. But the inside stuff you can't see. Why did God create it that way? Must be he wants that to be off limits to you. It's my right. You get it? It's my right. This is the classic enlightenment argument. Therefore, don't tell me what to think. You can tell me what to do. You can tell me not to make noise in a crowded theater. You can, you can tell me all kind of physical things, that's fine. But how can you tell me what to think? Right? So, uh, he's given no one, to, God has given to no one himself the right to legislate dogmas and rule over the religious conscience. So leave man's conscience free, says sentiments and thought guided in one manner or another towards the heavens. The Christian thinks about his thoughts in heavens in a Christian way. The Muslim thinks about his thoughts in heaven in a Muslim way, and the Jew thinks about it in a Jewish way, right? Will not be crimes that society punishes by loss of social rights. Or else create a national religion, arm yourself with a sword, tear up the Declaration of Independence. But there is justice and there is reason, and God will intervene. So this is placing the position of Jewish civil rights like Jefferson, not on the Jews, but on the principle of it. 
okay, on the principle of it. Now, uh, it's not so push it. The French parliament says if we emancipate the Jews of Alsace, it'll lead to riots because they're profoundly hated over there. And uh, the Jews, anyway, are usurers. They charge, uh, you know, money lending, and they'll get control of the real estate. It'll be just terrible. Uh, and uh, it will turn into a nightmare, and will alienate the whole province against the French Revolution. Uh, but the Sephardic Jew is a different story. After all, there's only 3,500 of them, and so it's just tiny. They all, you don't even all live in one place. And they look normal, and they don't excite as much uh, enmity. Let's do them. And that's what they did in December, or January 28th of 1790, so six months after the Bastille, okay? And the first law they pass in France about the Jews is, all Jews known in France, Portuguese, Spanish, Avignonese Jews, the Sephardim, shall continue to enjoy the same rights we enjoy by a better patent. In consequence thereof, they shall enjoy the right of active citizens if they possess the other requisite qualifications enumerated in the decrees of the assembly knows if they're born in the country or that, that sort of thing. So uh, if you're a Sephardic Jew, which was a distinct group, and as they say, there's only 3,500 of them in the whole country, so you're now citizens from now on. The Ashkenazic Jews, we tabled the discussion for some future occasion. Uh, this is in January 1790. In Alsace, this created very tense conditions because they have 40,000 Jews. Alsace represents the heart or the emotional side of the Jewish question, the anti-Semitic side especially since the Catholic Alsatians view the revolution as bad in many ways. They're bothering our local priests, they're bothering our local churches, they want to nationalize their cemeteries. No, there's any way they're angry at the new government. They'd like to bring the king back with all the right-wing stuff. And many members of parliament sided with the Alsatians. So they couldn't get any vote in favor of giving the Jews over there civil rights. Um, on the other hand, there starts to coalesce a group of members of the assembly, members of parliament, who approach the Jewish question from a different angle. Now, they're not Jeffersonians, they're Domians, like I said before. They're not coming the language that we saw before, but rather the language that says like this, ease up on the Jews and they'll convert, or they'll assimilate. You, you understand? Um, they're not him who says you do because it's a human right. They're him who says the Jews are obnoxious and bad, but we can ameliorate that, Okay. Uh, we grant you that Jews are obnoxious but it's not genetic it's a result of bad socialization it's reformable, it's doable but the first step has to be to normalize their situation and give them civil rights make them citizens um, the current system prevents intercourse between Jews and others causing the Jews to inbreed physically that's why they all look ugly socially and mentally in other words they were acknowledging that cultural insularity these are not Jews, uh, Christians for the first time, are acknowledging the cultural insularity as it, been, as it had been legislated by the Gentiles had been a mistake as it had played into the hands of the Talmudists, which is actually true. Okay? They finally hopped. <laughs> the Talmud, the Bible, says all Jews should hang together and be very clannish. All the halachas, are, let me put it this way, is there a law about Yahya Nesach and Stam Yenom? Yeah, you can't drink with other. What's that all about? It's a, it's a clannish, segregating type of thing. What did the Catholics do at the beginning of the Middle Ages? The Jews can't drink wine with us. They thought, oh, we're getting you. And only now, the French Revolution, they say, actually, we just helped the Jews 
being more Jew. Ding! <laughs> right? It's happened in 1790. I'm serious. You know, what they do by creating all these ghettos or whatever special statuses of one type or another? They plan into the hands of the religious. Ding. And so, the argument is, give civil rights for the Jews, and it will promote intermarriage and the disappearance of the Jews. All these members of parliament, or let me put it this way, are these members of parliament pro-Jewish or anti-Jewish? Here I'm laying bare before you the ambiguous nature of the modern devil's uh, bargain of emancipation. No free lunches. If you want the civil rights from the society, they expect you to blend in with the rest of the society. Uh, If you want to be brutally frank, the Frum Jews in America, at least in my opinion, have benefited in the 20th century and 21st century from the many, many Jews who are not from and who marry and intermarry and assimilate. As far as the most American Gentiles concerned, most Jews they come across are doable, you know. They're now very much, as we know, in the process of advanced intermarriage. Older. Everybody's got some Jewish relative, all the rest of it. That actually helps you, because the guy with the yarmulke, he's the one from the minority. But most Jews are normal, you see? So that's tricky. What about Thomas Jefferson arguments? That's true also, but you hear what I'm saying. It's tricky. People say... I don't like a large presence of a whole lot of people that look so funny and act different and hang around themselves and all the rest of it. And it puts a strain on the constitutional rights. As we see with the Muslim immigration, for example, something like that, uh, when, 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 when people develop this in, 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 in a large and, and uh, even extreme form, that's what history shows you. And finally, uh, if the Alsatian Jews are not emancipated, if their legal status is not normalized, then the autonomous Kahillas have to continue. Um, they have to function as a state within a state, which they've been doing forever. The Jews who live in Metz are subject to the Jewish community in Metz and go to their courts and follow their laws and all the rest of it. Um, is this not the opposite of everything the French Revolution was doing? Wasn't the whole point of the Revolution, which had not hit the guillotine stage yet, um, to abolish all the old structures, the monarchy, the, 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 the nobility, the churches, the guilds, and create a single modern efficient state? Why should the revolution make an, estate, uh, an exception of one thing? Not the monarchy and not the uh, you know, t- corporations, the kehilos of the Jews. It doesn't make any sense, okay, of all things. Now, this is a clever anti-Semitic appeal to the MPs to vote for emancipation. Get it? In other words, these were clever arguments p- put forward by those who favored giving the Jews civil rights. Um, you're actually delivering a blow to Yiddishkeit. And it was true. <laughs> okay? So I leave you here with, with, with the ambiguous legacy of the French Revolution. Over the course of 1790 and 1791, the revolution was moving to the left. The king was getting less and less popular. He foolishly listened to his wife and, and, and his brother, who were real right-wingers, and they advised him to veto the legislation of the assembly, all the rest of it. Dummy. You know, what you want to do is keep the... Friendship of the middle class. Middle class doesn't want a violent revolution, do they? They want, like England, you know, to have the king sign everything, go to the forums, we can go to Versailles and watch the change in the guard, you know, it's good for the tourism, all that business, right? We can talk about the royal weddings, public likes that sort of thing, you know? So, uh, that'll, that'll, that'll be fine. And no, and he's saying, show them who's boss, and get rid of these people, and abolish the thing, and go back to the old system. He was a dummy for listening to them. This was known... And therefore, it strengthened the left-wingers. It angered the mobs, who were unbelievably violent. So that when the 
when the, uh, I mean, look at that. Okay? Uh, the French Revolution is famous for everybody parading around with heads on pikes. More and more people, as 1790, 1791 continue, start to oppose the monarchy idea. Like, at the end of the day, who took on these Why are we paying money for the king and the queen and the palace and all that junk? Louis XVI doesn't really know how to play the role of an English monarch. In the summer of 91, okay, so we're now two years after the Bastille. In the summer of 91, he listens to right-wing advice, the king does, and he tries to flee the country to go to Austria, and is caught at the border. The worst of all possible cases. It's called the flight to Varennes. This turns the legislative assembly against him. Then the middle class says, what is this all about? What were you planning to do? He clearly was plotting against France. In other words, he is the husband of Marie Antoinette. She is the sister of the Austrian emperor. Right? The Austrians want to send an army in to restore the king's dictatorship powers and probably take a little bit of land while they're at it. That's the treason against the country. So you're the king, but you're committing treason against the country. You see, it's ultimately why they chopped his head off. So what a dumb mistake that was. The radical left just rises to power. We told you. You didn't listen to us. We told you. And soon, we're about to head to guillotine. I'm going to start getting really violent. In this atmosphere in 1791, in the second half of 1791, all Christian traditionalism has become weakened because it's now identified with a discredited royalist cause. Oh, you're a strong Catholic believer? Chop up his head or watch him very closely. Because obviously he's one of these people who doesn't approve what the government is doing and would like to take it back to the old days. Left-wing liberals now see their chance to do a lot of things because the mood is anti-right-wing. And on September 3rd, 1791, September 3rd, 1791, they pass a new constitution, okay, which says, among other things, fundamental rights guarantee the constitution, citizens are admissible to all place employments without any other distinction except virtue and talents. And you can have liberty to exercise whatever religious worship you want. So what about the Jews of Alsace? Again, you're making these big declarations. Are you putting it into practice? We can't smirk. The United States of America was founded by people who said all men are created equal, but they had slaves. But in the same way, although America took a lot longer, after all, you know, it took 60, 70 years, people said, if all men are created equal, so why do we have slavery over here? It led to the Civil War eventually. Because you put it out there, the idea has a power of its own. Uh, so this new constitution in September 3, obviously um, brought the question of the Jews of Alsace into the fore. Last year, the civil rights was voted down for the Alsatian Jews, but now you've made such a sweeping guarantees in the new constitution. Are you really going to make a legal island of the 40,000 Jews that live in Alsace and Lorraine? Doesn't the logic of the current French situation demand the doing away of all special situations? I know the people in Alsace won't like it, but so what? We're ready for a fight. Although the proposal is vociferously opposed by anti-Semites, but the arguments I showed you before of Clermont-Tonnerre uh, wins a majority. When? Uh, a few weeks later, right after uh, September 3. When, whatever he meant in his heart, we'll never know, because he was killed a little bit later by one of these mobs when the revolution went really violent. Uh, his basic argument was vote for civil rights for the Jews for anti-Semitic reasons. <laughs> as I said before, right? During the debate, Comte, the Count of Clermont-Tonnerre, advocates explicitly formulated the assimilation assumptions when he said on December 3, 3, 
The Jews should be denied everything as a nation, but everything granted everything as individuals. Get rid of your synagogues, get rid of your kahilos, get rid of your basins and all that kind of stuff, and be like everybody. And they should not be tolerated. The Jews should be a separate political formation or class in the country. Every one of them individually must become a citizen. If they don't want to do this, then tell us and we'll kick them out of the country. A nation within a nation is unacceptable to our country. But okay, I get that. But then that means if you if you agree with that statement, it's nice anti then you've got to give them citizenship. Right? Because then you say like this, we'll make you citizen, but then don't do anything else. But if I don't give you citizenship, I say the law applies to everybody except Jews, and obviously the Jews have a right, naturally, to band it together. So less than four weeks after the passage of this new constitution, the new Jew bill passes finally. So they basically bit the bullet. And as you see over here, National Assembly, considering conditions of the French na- uh, nation, come act as citizen of fist by the constitution, Every man being duly qualified takes the oath and agrees to fulfill the duties prescribed by the Constitution, has the right to advantage as assured, and annuls all Germans' restrictions contained in preceding decrees affecting people of the Jewish persuasion as long as they take the oath of allegiance to the country. So they, they didn't want to do it, but they did it. Right? They said even the Jewish Jews, even the Yiddish speaking people, you know, if, it, if it's France for one, it's France for all. You can't have a situation where you have multiple situations being at the same time. can't have the Jim Crow laws. It just doesn't work anymore. can't have two water fountains like they used to say. It just doesn't work anymore. It's got to be one for everybody else. And this was a first. Never in history did a country actually say that Jews have legal equality with the people who are not Jewish. Never existed before. There was this, there was that, there were privileges, there were xeras back, you know, some places more, some places less. You know, you did circumvention, shtick. Stick, stick, stick. Now, it's a, we're abolishing stick. It's one country, and it's, a, it's an open law. It's passed by the parliament after all the debates back and forth, and they say like this, get used to it. All Frenchmen are Frenchmen, even those who are Jewish. Uh, it was done grudgingly, and in the expectation of a separate, uh, you know, the end of a separate Jewish identity. So I leave you tonight with this question, is this a liberal measure? How would the Jews react? Would they take it and run? Would they take the honey and avoid the sting? Meaning I'll stay as Jewish and religious as I want, but now take advantage of the fact that I have civil rights? Or would they be so afraid of taking the honey, that they would take the honey back, that they would embrace the sting? Which turned out what the majority of French Jews eventually did over the next hundred years. They said, I'm willing to assimilate and drop my Judaism and all the rest of it, because the alternative is to go back on this bargain. You understand? And I don't want to do that. So each one of the French Jews had to make his and her decision how much they wanted to assimilate, but they all eventually did quite a bit of assimilation. I got to go to a French school and learn French properly and consider myself a French patriot and uh, do French, 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 and a little Jewish, a little, a little bit, right? Provided the Jew- Jewish services are mostly in French and they conform to the French norms and this and that and the other. Uh, this is a problem down till today, okay? Uh, but except that you and I live post-Holocaust, Prior to the Holocaust, it was taken for granted, particularly in France, that Judaism must reorganize itself to adjust itself to the unspoken but clear demands of society for a quid pro quo. Okay? So even Sam Sreval Hirsch, who was real from, had to say, well, but it's got to be termed Erechard. It's got to be German. It's got to be modern. You've got to be European. Uh, but if you play your cards right and you walk the narrow line, you can be 100% Shomotor Mitzvah. That's who Hirsch was. This is exactly what he was. 
He's saying you can do it, right? You, but you have to, you know, you have to totally identify with the German and this and that and the other, and then you can be 100% a Torah Jew. Um, the Holocaust kind of popped the balloon, didn't it? Okay? Uh, when you had France, France, you had Marshal Pétain and Pierre Laval, the friends of Hitler, and what did the French do? They arrested French citizens, and they moved to Auschwitz, they him to Drancy, sea, and from Drancy they sent him to Auschwitz. So then this is a betrayal of 1790. The French today, French today, in their history books and in their literature, they say this was wrong, not because it was an inhuman thing, that's a, sep- a totally separate discussion, right, about the inhumanity of the Holocaust, but this betrayed France, because we made a deal, you understand? And the deal was, you'll assimilate yourselves, and in return you get all the privileges of citizenship. And yet, the French government, as we all know, and the Vichy government anyway, in 1940 to 45, 44, whatever, uh, when they had a chance, took French citizens who were assimilated, most of them, and who were completely, you know, part of France and all the rest of it. You could be a guy, and this happened often, I'm sure you know this, somebody who was wounded in the First World War fighting for France, but when the Vichy government came in, they rounded you up and sent you off and gassed you. Uh, and so, Saint Rival Hirsch sounds difficult, different to us today. We read it's kind of cutesy. When he says, you know, be loyal to Germany and all the rest of it, we kind of, you know, give it a pass. You understand? We say, oh, you know, he lived at that time, all the rest of it. Doesn't speak to us in the same way. Now, I conclude with this, but I will say that uh, it's a complicated subject, and uh, we will pursue this more as we explore the French Revolution. Good night. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidovidkatz.com.